John chapter 13, verse 1 to 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's the night before Jesus dies. For hours, Jesus will be dead and buried. Jesus knows that his death is imminent. He knows that his departure is inevitable and he knows his disciples are ignorant. His death, he knows, is imminent His departure from them is inevitable, but his disciples are ignorant. He's tried so many times to help them understand what was about to happen, but they're ignorant. They haven't got it. And now, within 24 hours, he will be dead and buried. So what does Jesus try to do? Jesus tries to prepare them for everything that's coming. That's the context for understanding the episode we just had read for us by Declan of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But how is the washing of the feet connected to the fact that he's about to depart and he's about to die? That's what we've got to try to investigate today and try and untie that together. But let me just uh, help you understand where we're up to in John's Gospel. If you've been with us here at EU Public Meetings this year, you'll know that we've been looking on and off at different times throughout the year at John's Gospel. I want you to just 
find your place, I guess, for this particular passage. So I can go to draw it up on the board for you here like this. John's Gospel has 21 chapters. The account we just had read for us is from chapter 13, so sort of just past halfway. From chapter 1 through to chapter 12, as John narrates Jesus' life, death and resurrection, this section of his account, chapter 1 to chapter 12, takes about, probably covers about two and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. Two and a half years condensed down into just 12 chapters. The next section of John's Gospel from chapter 13 through to chapter 19, this section here, takes place in one 24-hour day. Two and a half years in 12 chapters and then in five chapters, one 24-hour period. And how does that particular 24-hour period end? It ends with Jesus' death and burial. Within this, from chapter 13 through to chapter 17, this section is one evening. The evening before the day that Jesus dies. And it is this section from chapter 13 to chapter 17 where Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for his death that is imminent, his departure that is inevitable and address his disciples' ignorance, their ignorance of what is coming and what it's going to mean. So this evening is all about preparing them for all that is to come. You can see just the way that John's told the story, this is obviously the climax for everything that's happened so far. Two and a half years in 12 chapters, and then he just slows right down. And you get an incredible detail, the things that Jesus says the night before he's terribly crucified. This is the section that we're jumping into today and next week. We're going to look, spend two weeks looking at this section, this evening really, of uh, Jesus talking with his disciples in chapters 13 through 17. Next week we're going to be looking at one of the key things he says in here is about the Holy Spirit. So next week it's all about the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? What's it doing? Well, that's next week. This week, the foot washing. What is this foot washing all about? So if you've got your Bible there, let's have a bit of a look. Chapter 13, maybe you can look on with the person next to you or call it up on your phone. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is the key verse, really, that John uses to set up this whole section of what's coming. Notice how he starts. He says, It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, if you've been with us in EU public meetings as we've been looking through John's Gospel, that phrase, Jesus' hour, should set off some hopefully some synapses or neurons or something in your brain, you sort of go, oh yes, we've talked about this before. Indeed we have. In fact, back in chapter 2, when Jesus first turned water into wine, his mum comes to him and says, hey Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus' response is basically, why are you involving me? My hour has not yet come. Why are you pushing me to the front? Why do you want me to take centre stage here in this situation? My hour has not yet come. Well, in chapter 7, verse 30, his opponents, Jesus' opponents, can't 
They try to grab him, they try to seize him, take him, but they can't lay hands on him. Why, we're told? Because Jesus' hour had not yet come. Or in chapter 12, verse 23, when some Greeks arrive wanting to see Jesus, Jesus then announces, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Even though he then goes on to say how troubled he is by the arrival of this hour. It's going to mean difficulty for Jesus personally. So now Jesus is saying, or now John is telling us, Jesus knew that his hour had come. The hour for what? Well, I guess for all those things. The hour for him to take centre stage. The hour for him to be seized, taken by his opponents. The hour, yes, for him to be glorified. But notice what he says there in chapter 13, verse 1. It's the hour for him to depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus is about to leave them. And so he needs to prepare them. Now, how is Jesus going to leave them? Going to get in a plane? Is he going to go in a rocket ship, space shuttle to get back to the Father? How? What is Jesus' path of departure? Well, his path of departure is through the cross, through resurrection, and then his ascension to the Father. That is Jesus' path of departure through the awful, terrible crucifixion, through the surprising, for Jesus' disciples, resurrection, and through the ascension that they probably never even, never even contemplated. It's going to be a very surprising path that Jesus is about to take. The crucifixion is shameful. Jesus knows that that's the way he's going to die. A bit earlier in chapter 12, Jesus says these things in chapter 12, verse 32 and 33. He says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John comments, Jesus said this to show what kind of death he was to die. Jesus knows that he's going to be executed. And he knows, though, he's also then going to reappear again in resurrection that they will see him again briefly as he goes on to tell them in this same evening in chapter 14 and then that he's going to ascend and return to his father where they'll see him no more. This is the path of his departure. But he needs to prepare them for it because without Jesus' commentary, without Jesus' explanation, I don't think they would get it. But if you can imagine for a moment being there outside Jerusalem the next day as you're seeing three people executed by crucifixion, Jesus there in the middle, as you look at that scene, if you can imagine it, how would you interpret it? What would, what do you th- what would you be seeing there? Surely that would look like judgment and defeat of Jesus. Doesn't that look like the world's judgment on Jesus? He claimed to be somebody, he claimed to be the Messiah, the King, and look what we've done to him. He's being judged. And it's his defeat, surely. The crushing power of Rome, the authority of the Jewish leaders poured out on Jesus. You think you're the Messiah? This is what we do to you. And a warning to his disciples, actually. If you're one of his disciples and you see that happening to Jesus, what's that going to do to you? 
So Jesus has to help them to see what should they see when they look there. And if you look through the different things, I hope you go away and read chapter 13 through 17. It's an amazing evening of conversation, Jesus and his disciples. He says several things. One of the things he says, actually, when you're looking at that scene tomorrow, it's not judgment and defeat on me. He says, actually, that is the moment of judgment on the world and defeat of the evil one, defeat of the prince of this world. That's what he says in chapter, 13, uh, chapter 12, verse 31. He repeats it that evening. He says, then when you're looking at that particular scene, what you should see there is actually God the Father's good plan coming to fruition. That's what he says in chapter 14, verse 31. But the particular thing he wants them to see is that that scene is a picture of love. Now, if you or I were standing there on that next day watching Jesus be executed by crucifixion, I'm pretty sure none of us would think, ah, yes, look at that picture of love. That's just... And yet what Jesus is at great pains to show them on this particular evening is that when they're looking at that, they're to see love. How's he going to communicate that to them? by taking off his clothes, wrapping a towel around his waist, filling a basin with water and washing each person's feet in the room. Oh, hang on, how's that going to show about love? Well, that's what we need to have a look at. Let's have a look. Notice, you've got your Bible there, notice how John says it in the second half of verse 1 of chapter 13. Having loved his own who were in the world... Jesus now showed them the full extent of his love. That is, he loved them literally to the end. Having loved his own, he's loved his disciples up to this particular point, now he's about to love them to the end. That's not about washing their feet. He's, remember, this whole evening is about looking forward to the cross. He's saying when he gets to the cross, that will be love to the end. The cross is love's pinnacle. The cross is love supreme. It's love to the end, to its full extent. It's the love of the Father and the love of the Son poured out on those who actually would kill him. He loved them to the end. And the foot washing is meant to help them get this. How so? Okay, well you have to understand that to wash the feet of someone in the ancient world was incredibly demeaning. It was an activity that was always left to the lowest of servants. There was no honour in washing somebody else's feet. There was no privilege in the, in the opportunity. There was no status. Feet wearing sandals in days with no piped sewage, no concrete paths. Feet were covered in all sorts of muck and filth. And it's no wonder that at this particular evening, when it's just a bunch of friends, Jesus and his friends together, peers, if you like, it's no surprise with no servants on hand that no one has got down to wash the other people's feet. We're all just friends here. No one's going to do that. So let's all just you know, lie on our side and stick our feet away from the food and just put up with the smell and we'll just... That's... But Jesus decides to wash their feet. But have a look at verse 3. They're not a bunch of peers, actually. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. 
Jesus was the most powerful person there in the room. Keep reading. He knew that he had come from God. He had the highest status of anyone in that room. He was the one who'd come from God. And that he was returning to God. Yes, this is the hour of his glorification, holding him up as the one full of glory. And yet, he's the one who takes off his clothes, dons the towel, and does the dirty work. What's Jesus showing here in this moment as he takes on this lowest of tasks? He's showing us three things about the cross. Three things about the cross. The first is he's showing us what the cross is. He's trying to show us what, the, what is really happening there when he dies on the cross. It's him humbly serving them. Like when he washes their feet. He's humbly serving them. He's laying aside his status, his power, to do what they need doing. To do what they can't do for themselves at humiliating cost. He's showing them that it's true love. It's loving, voluntary sacrifice. What is the cross? Loving, voluntary sacrifice. Jesus didn't have to wash their feet. It was a demeaning thing to do. It was voluntary sacrifice out of love. And that's what the cross is. Jesus' loving, voluntary sacrifice for you and me. He's showing us what the cross is. Secondly, he's showing us what the cross does. Have a look in verse 8. Whereas, uh, as Peter, as, uh, sorry, Jesus goes around washing their feet, comes to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter is sort of watching what's going on, seeing Jesus do this most demeaning of things, coming around then getting to Peter's feet, and Peter he says, no, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In other words, no, no, you're, I'm not going to let you. I don't know about them. They're letting you do it. That's shocking. I'm I'm not going to let you do that. And look at Jesus' answer. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. He's not talking about foot washing here, really. The foot washing is just an example of what's going on at the cross. The cross is about cleansing. The cross is about cleansing from sin so that we might share what belongs to Jesus, God's true Son. Unless we're cleansed by him, unless through faith and trusting his promise so that we're united to him, unless we're united to him and share him, then we have no share in what he wins at the cross. Forgiveness, cleansing, eternal life. It's an amazing, humbling act of love that Jesus does here so that we might be clean. Um, I spent a year living in a developing country in the two-thirds world, living and working there. There, were no, there was no sewage. There was the streets, literally, were open sewers. Um, I lived in a, we lived in a house and to get down to the main road so I could walk to work, I had to go down a reasonably steep driveway. Um, and walking down that driveway each morning on my way to work, I had to step through the faeces, 
the poo, the mud, the bath water, the rubbish, and that was just my driveway. There was the poo of animals and all sorts of refuse from people. It was all, that, was just, that was just getting down my driveway. And yes, it was inevitable that my feet got covered in it. There was no route you could pick down the, the driveway to avoid it. You just, just had to get through it. And yeah, it was ugly and gross. And when you headed out in thongs and sandals, yeah. But oh, how beautiful it was when you got to wash your feet clean. When you actually got to wash them clean, it was so sweet, so fresh, so new. What's going on here? Well, that is our soul. S-O-U-L, right? <laughs> that's, that's our soul. We walk through the poo of selfishness every day. We walk through and stain it with petty vindictiveness and jealousy. It gets covered, our soul, with any number of lies and deceits. We trip up and step through greed and sexual immorality and pornography. We splash into idolatry, revenge, even violence. Our souls are so stained. And we all know it. It's as inevitable as the poo on my feet as I walk down that driveway every morning. But the wonder of having your soul washed clean by Jesus. He cleans what you and I never could. I can clean my stinky feet, but no amount of good intentions or effort on my part can remove the stain of sin from my soul. Only him, only he can do that. Through his death in my place on the cross, bearing my guilt, my shame, bearing my penalty, in my place, your place. Only that can cleanse your soul from the sin that stains it. That's what the cross does. So fresh, so new, so sweet is your soul washed clean by Jesus. That's what the cross does. But there's a third thing Jesus points out to us about the cross here from this foot washing. It's how the cross is then meant to shape our life. Have a look at verses 14 to 16 in the last part of this foot washing moment. Chapter, 14, uh, verse, chapter 13, verse 14. Now that I, says Jesus, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Peter was objecting that, oh, you're our master and Lord, you, you shouldn't wash our feet, but he's saying, well, if that's what I've done, no servant is greater than the master, right? So if I've done this for you, you should do this one for another. It's not that Jesus wants us to be a bunch of sort of literal 
foot washers, so you rock up here to public meeting next week and there's Declan at the door. <laughs> Take your shoes off, people, and like, much as that might... Well, I don't know if that'd be nice or not, actually. <laughs> it's not about foot washing, is it? Because remember, the foot washing is all about actually what's coming at the cross. What's Jesus trying to do? He's calling his disciples to follow his example of loving, voluntary sacrifice. He set an example for his disciples to follow that we are to be people of loving, voluntary sacrifice in the way we seek to care for one another. And it's not actually just his, his immediate followers, it's actually all of his followers. Have a look in chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says it's a new command, love one another. But if you know a bit about the Bible, you think, actually that's not new. Jesus got it wrong, actually. Um, Because in the Old Testament, what are the two main commands in the Old Testament? Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and love your neighbour as yourself. It's not new at all. God's people are always called to love one another. Always. So what's new about it? What's new about it is that there's the new standard that's been set. As I have loved you. As I have loved you. At the cross. So you should love one another. A new standard, a new model has been set for our love for each other. What are we to do? We're to love like our Lord. We're to love like our Lord. That's what we're to do. Now you might think, okay, Jesus' love of us at the cross, that's, that's huge. And now we're to love each other. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's big too. That's enough to think about. No, it's not. It's not enough to think about. Because there is a bigger love story to tell. And it's very exciting. (laughs) And it's the bigger love story that Jesus tells this whole evening. So you need to get a pen and a piece of paper right now. And you need to draw three corners of a triangle like this right now. And you need to write Father there. And you need to write Son there. And you need to write Disciples here. And then what you need to... I'm not joking... Come on, we don't have much time. And then you're going to look up these verses. Chapter 14.23, chapter 14.31, chapter 15 verse 9 and chapter 13 verse 34. And if you're really fast, you can add in chapter 15.12 and chapter 14 verse 21 and you're going to... I'll show you what you're going to do. Actually... Let's look at the uh, let's look at our verse uh, chapter fourteen verse thirty one. Chapter fourteen verse thirty one says, "The world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what the Father, my Father, has commanded me." I says Jesus, love the Father. He loves the Father and does exactly what the Father tells him to do. He loves the Father, seen in his obedience. So you look up these other verses, do it now with the person next to you, do it fast 
and label the corners of the triangle and discover for yourself the bigger love story that Jesus is trying to tell them. So in chapter 14, verse 23, 14, verse 23, we read there, If anyone loves me, says Jesus, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come and make our home. So if you, to love Jesus and obey Jesus, if you love Jesus and obey Jesus, then my Father will love him. Verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As my Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Good. Chapter 13, verse 34. Love one another as I have loved you. So if you just had that last one, love one another as I have loved you, you just have this little bit, right? But no, there's a much bigger story of love here that Jesus is trying to tell this very evening. And what is that big story? The big story is as you entrust yourself to Jesus in loving obedience, you are caught up in this eternal divine relationship of love between the Father and the Son. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And my Father will love you. The love of the Father and the Son is extended out from all eternity and grabs you. Yes? grabs you and you are caught up into this eternal relationship of the love of the Father and the Son. And so when he says, as I have loved you, so you love one another, yes, do you see why this is so important? Because this is now a reflection and expression of the very love that God as Father and the Son have extended to you. This is not just a random ethical decision as though Christianity could have been, instead of love being central, as though it could have been sweetness. We're all about sweetness. <laughs> no, it's because of the eternal relationship of father and son in love for one another that is extended out and wraps you that now you go and live in love. That's the biggest story of love he's trying to tell. I'm going to keep going for three, four more minutes and then you're just going to run to your next class. Okay? That'll be alright. That's cool, right? That'll be fine. Because the most important question, maybe, at a practical level, is this. So, as I have loved you, love one another. And what did he say in chapter 13, verse 35? By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It would have been so much easier if Jesus just said, I'm giving you all a T-shirt and if you just wear the T-shirt, they'll all know you're my disciples. He didn't say that. He said, they will know you're my disciples by what you carry around with you? No. By the fact that you turn up regularly on a Sunday to go to... No. How will they know that you're a Christian? By your love for one another. How does the world out there in our university, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, how does it know that the EU is a bunch of Christians? Well, because of our posters and our T-shirts. and our It should be, should it not, because of our love for one another. 
that though they may hate what Jesus stands for, they may hate what the truth of Jesus, they cannot deny the tangible experience of love that Christians show for one another. Because love breaks through. I was thinking about this this week in preparation for this moment. I wrote a few things down. I'm just going to read them out to you. Love cuts through. When intellectual objections abound, when hatred mounts, when intolerance is applauded, when apathy and dismissal is the norm, when ignorance and biblical illiteracy is the air we breathe, what will cut through? Love cuts through. What does God use to create an opening for the gospel? What will God use to spark a willingness to listen, to arouse curiosity in a Jesus and a gospel that had hitherto been written off? Love through. They'll know you are Christians by your love. I've left you an example that you should follow. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved through. Those Christians, they love like their Lord. They love like their Lord. Love cuts through. His love cuts through our sin. Our love cuts through our culture's hard hearts. And here's the important question you need to go away and think about. If this is who God has made us to be, what is stopping us from doing it? What are the hurdles, the hindrances that are stop us actually being a community of love like this? Individualism, pride, apathy, busyness. What are the things that we need to get rid of so that we can be the people Jesus has called us to be? We're going to pray in response to Rowan's talk, so please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you for your great love. That even though we were dead in sin and in rebellion against you, that you sent Jesus. That he loved us voluntarily and sacrificially through his love shown in his death on the cross. And we thank you that we're cleansed from sin at the cross and that you have cleansed us from this sin that we could never cleanse on our own. Father, we ask that you will help us to love one another, to love like the Lord Jesus loved us and to reflect the love that you and the Son have for each other in our community. Help us to be a community of Jesus' disciples that loves each other. We ask that the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples through this love. We ask that if there are things that are stopping us from being a community of love, that you will help us to leave these behind and that the world may know that we are Christ's disciples because of our love. 
We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Cool.